the announcements, we're going to jump into Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your Bible with you or your electronic device, you can tab over to chapter 11, and it's going to be another one verse Sunday, verse 7. If you need to borrow a Bible, here's the guys with Bibles. You can uh, hang on, hold on. Here we go. Um, raise your hand, and the guys will be happy to let you borrow a Bible. Most of you know we've been, I'll use the word plodding along, we've been plodding along through this great letter, uh, and especially here in chapter 11, we've slowed down even a little bit more. We've taken a couple just even one verses. The whole series through Hebrews is called Draw Near, and most recently we've been looking at what's often called the, the Hall of Faith. It's these various Old Testament people that the writer focuses, focuses on and uh, gives us a testimony of how they trusted God, trusted His Word, and what that meant for their life. In verses 1 through 3, uh, it was example, or excuse me, it was faith defined, and now from verses 4 and on, it's faith demonstrated. And so Abel demonstrated faith in his worship, Uh, Enoch demonstrated faith in his walk, and today we're going to be looking at Noah as he demonstrates faith in his work, all right? So faith in work. If you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me, so imakara tate kurasai if it's okay. We're blessed, you know, I don't know if you know, we, we get to translate our messages into Japanese and as we worship in English and Japanese. And, um, and so even, uh, I was talking with Grandma, I said, oh, if you, know, you want to sit towards the back, it's better. And she's like, no, I, I like to see your face. <laughs> Blessed me. I'm like, I don't know why, but praise the Lord. All right. We read, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned, of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. One verse, there's a lot going on. Uh, We will be visiting other verses as well this morning, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing that we can gather here Lord, we're grateful for the invitation of prayer, really the privilege that you've given us as we've studied not too long ago, even in the book of Hebrews, how we can come boldly into your throne room of grace, that we might find mercy and help in our time of need. But Lord, also we can find wisdom and comfort. We can find peace, perspective. Lord, ultimately, anything that we need, Lord, we can come to you and you are the great provider. And Father, even as we look at the life of Noah, as he would hear your word and heed your word, Lord, may we follow that pattern today, that we might hear what you would say, that we would hold that dear to our heart, and Lord, then we would do what you've declared, Lord, that we would apply the scripture and live the scripture. Jesus, may you increase as we decrease. And we give you this time of study now. May our focus be on you, on your word, as your spirit speaks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you take a moment and say hello to somebody, and then you can have a seat?
お願いします<笑> you ever have these events where it in one sense is just marked you in a good way like something's happened in your life and you hold on to that uh, really forever I, I've had a few of those, and, and one of those events happened to me a few years ago when I was in college、uh, working in the kitchen at the、uh, old spaghetti factory in Riverside, California. And、uh, sorry, <laughs> everyone's going to get pasta later, I guess.、Uh, so the general manager, who normally was a nice guy and pretty、um, mild mannered, came in and apparently he was having a bad day, so he, he kind of blew into the back where we were. And, and basically barked at the kitchen staff and said, You know, I'm tired of the dirty floor, I'm tired of the, the messiness, and, and, and made us、uh, clean the kitchen floors, the tile floor, on our hands and knees、uh, with these little scrub brushes.、Um, it was just shy of, you know, here's a toothbrush and do it with these little scrub brushes. And so we did.、Uh, it wasn't that that necessarily marked me how the manager came in and said, We need to do this. But What happened was, as we were starting to do this, one of the other managers, the hosting manager named Darren, walked by. And as he walked by around the corner, he saw us. And, and he didn't ask anything, he didn't say anything. But when he saw us, we saw him, and he took off, he was wearing a suit, he took off his jacket, and he took his tie, and he tucked it into his shirt, and he unbuttoned his,、uh, but, he rolled up his sleeves, and he got, on the, got, he got on the floor with us, on his hands and knees, in his suit, and started to scrub the ground. Along with the rest of us in the kitchen staff. And that event, that day, that act, I have carried with me for some decades now.、Uh, what Darren did was he, he won the admiration and allegiance of the entire kitchen staff. Not only the guys that were there that day, but news quickly spread to the rest of the crew. And so, that any time that Darren walked in and he needed something, he needed some extra help, or he needed us to expedite an order, or whatever it was, we were like, no problem. We gave him preference over everything and everybody else. We found that we worked harder, and really with just this eagerness, all from gratitude, because we wanted to help him simply because he helped us. And it was that act of Servant leadership. It was that act, a moment of humility, that impressed me greatly. And it has served as a vivid reminder of the influence we have at work and the lasting impact that you and I can make with other people around us. Now, at that time, I wasn't following the Lord, I wasn't a Christian. And I don't know if Darren was a Christian or not. But when I became a follower of Christ, I came to realize as I reflected upon that episode that what Darren did that day was very Christ like. I mean, it's exactly what the scriptures call us to do. And really, it became a great, or it is a great example of what Jesus did. Actually, Jesus, what Jesus did is on a, great, a greater and grander scale. The Bible tells us that Jesus set aside the fullness of his deity. And that he put on human flesh. That he, if you will, got on the ground level with sinful humans to show us the grace and the goodness and the love of God. 
In the book of Philippians, Paul writes to that church and he says, but Christ made himself of no reputation, that he took the form of a bondservant and he came in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, he became obedient to the point of death, even to death upon a cross. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate the fact that Christ came, that God came as a man. Emmanuel, God with us. The Bible says that you and I, we love God because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 9. And gang, it is when you and I have been deeply impressed and impacted by the love and the grace of God in our lives. When we realize and understand that Jesus came and he rolled up his sleeves, if you will, and he got on you know, ground level with us and all that the Lord has done for us, that our response to that then should be adoration and admiration to worship and to live, and I would add this, and to work in response to what God has done for us and a genuine desire to bless the Lord because He has blessed us so much. Where does faith fit into your workplace? Noah provides a great example for us. We read in verse 7, and we will do as we've done. We're going to just take one verse and we're going to pull it apart. And we'll look at some of these phrases. By faith, Noah. If you've been with us, you already know that I've told you that each introduction of these different people in the Old Testament is marked by this phrase, by faith. It's not necessary, necessarily that the writer's talking about the great feats of heroism or their act of valor, that's not the emphasis of why he's bringing these examples. The emphasis is God declared it, these people believed it, and what did they do in response to that? By faith, these people responded. And so by faith, Noah. Well, Noah, the writer of Hebrews, brings Noah into the spotlight of his conversation about faith. And for the Jewish believers, the original audience, these followers of Christ who came out of a Jewish background, Noah would need no introduction. In fact, all of them really would need no introduction. But I suppose for many of us today, Noah is a a Bible figure that needs no introduction. Many of us know his story. It's a well-known account. Depictions and drawings and cartoons and these things of Noah and his family, the ark, the animals, you know, they're popular decorations. And so we're familiar with the story of Noah. It's commonly known, but also it's not without controversy. It's not without scrutiny. Skeptics of Scripture often will challenge or doubt the veracity of the Bible record of the flood, uh, of the the truthfulness of of the dimensions, and, and how can all of these animals fit on that. And so there's a lot of skepticism, and yet archaeological discoveries and scientific studies always seem to support what the Bible has already told us of its truthfulness, of its veracity, the fact that there was a worldwide catastrophic flood that took place. Well, Noah is introduced at his birth in Genesis chapter 5, and then from there, from chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, so we have all of these chapters, it gives us a chronicle of his life. Some of these other people get a couple verses, 
Noah gets several chapters. And we learn in chapter 6 of Genesis that people on the planet Earth at that time had made a big mess of their life. It didn't take very long. There's several generations after God created Adam and Eve and the rest of the world that sin, immorality, and this weird spiritual demonic activity became commonplace. In fact, the commentary that we're given on what was happening in Genesis 6 verse 5 says that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart of man was continually evil always. And so understand that sin had spread like a global pandemic. It was ceaseless and it was celebrated. And then in verse 8 we read, or excuse me, prior to that, we understand that God said, you know what, enough is enough. And in his sovereign right, because he's the creator of all things, he said, you know what, I'm done with this. And he was going to bring judgment upon the earth that he had created and upon people that he had made and destroy it all. But then we have this beautiful contrasting verse in verse 8, Genesis 6, 8. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's a very beautiful and powerful statement, that Noah found grace. I hope that you know, thank God, because of his grace, because of Jesus, we can find grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's a lot of parallels of our life today to Noah's in the time of Noah. Ephesians chapter 2 describes what our lives of sin look like. And it looks a lot like the lives of people that lived in Noah's day. We have a little bit of time, and so even though we're just doing one verse here, if you can, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, because I'd love to just read these verses to you, and you can read them along and consider them as well. This very powerful truth and very personal truth to all of us who name the name of Christ, of God's love and His grace, and I pray that it would sink down deep in your soul this morning to realize that you and I too, we, have find, we find grace in the eyes of the Lord because of the work of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, the writer, well, it's Paul, he says, And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you and I once walked. So this is a picture of our old life. For some of you, maybe it's a picture of your life today. I hope that you know that today you can surrender your life to Christ, that this can be a truthful statement about you, that in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, right, this spiritual force in which we are held bondage, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once, Paul includes himself, we all once conducted ourselves. We all fall short of the glory of God in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh, and even of our minds, of our thoughts. And we were then by nature, our default nature, we're born into sin, children of wrath, just as everybody else. Verse 4, but God. Just like in Genesis 6, right? But Noah found grace, but God, what? 
but God who is rich in mercy because of His great love in which He loved you, even though we were dead, God made us alive. God is the one who did this. He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. We've been raised up together in the heavenly place, in Christ Jesus. Why? That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His glory and His kindness towards us in Christ. We are the trophies of God's grace. And by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not your work. It's not religion. You don't rate it. You don't earn it. We're all in the same playing field. It's God's grace, and it's a gift that He gives to you and me. Not of works, lest any of us boast. And then we're reminded that we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus, poema, a beautiful work that God is still working But why? He has a plan for us. It's not a cliche, it's true. That you and I then might work and walk in all that God has prepared for us. Our lives are not too unlike Noah in the days of Noah. That you and I have found grace in the eyes of the Lord because of what Christ has done. And Noah responded to that grace. And God calls you and me to respond to that grace. What does that look like? Well, you can turn back to uh, Hebrews 11. We're told that Noah was divinely warned of things not yet seen. A spiritual radar. Something's coming, Noah. What was the warning and what was coming? Well, again, it's in Genesis that we learn this. If you're not familiar with it, I do highly encourage you to take some time this week to read Genesis chapter 6 and 7, 8, and 9. But Genesis 6 tells us that Noah was, uh, or excuse me, God told Noah that he, God, was going to bring judgment on planet Earth. And that God was going to save Noah, and he gave Noah a big job to do. What was the job? Noah's job was to build a boat. Whatever he did before, whatever his prior MOS was, he got a new one. He's a boat maker. He's an architect. <laughs> oh, I just, that's inspired right here on the, right here. I don't think I've ever heard that one either. Thank you, Lord. He had to make this ark. And it was going to be the means by which God would save Noah, save his family. And essentially, we find out God's going to hit the reset button on all of creation, and in this ark, two by two, an animal of every kind. Now, let's just for a moment put ourselves in Noah's sandals. Imagine, if you will, you are Noah. And one day, God comes to you and says, Noah, I'm done. I'm done with people. You ever get to that place? I'm done with those people. (laughs) I'm done with people. But I'm not done with you. You found grace in my eyes. But I'm going to bring judgment on this entire planet. I mean, something that has never happened before or since was going to happen. In fact, the scriptures even indicate that not only was it judgment, but it had never rained before. The idea of rain was a new concept. My, my Okinawan grandma 
she was born and raised here, and she never traveled anywhere else, not even to mainland Japan. And so uh, she, never, she never got to experience what a snowstorm was. She could see it in pictures, and she saw it in movies, but experientially, she didn't know, you know, what a snowball was, you know. I mean, for them, they didn't understand the idea of rain. Maybe, maybe the concept of it, but the experience of it, they never had. I mean, so something that you never knew, something that, you know, or everyone that you knew, and something that you never knew, and everything that you did know, all of it was going to change. And then by means of God's grace, He provided you and your family a way to escape from that. But it's contingent upon you trusting God, trusting what He says is coming, though you've never seen it, and then acting upon what God has told you to do. It requires faith, and it requires complete obedience in order for all of it to work. It's paramount. It's dependent upon that. God told Noah, I'm bringing judgment and you better get ready. Now, we know the account that God made good on his word. A flood did come and Noah and his family were saved. And after this act of judgment, God's grace still persisted. He puts a rainbow in the sky afterwards as a reminder of his grace, as a reminder of the promise that God told Noah, I'm not going to judge the world again, and he qualifies it with a flood. With a flood. We fast forward in our day, there's still a lot of parallels. God has promised his return to us. We too have been divinely warned of something we have not yet seen. The Bible tells us there's going to come another judgment. A time on planet earth, as Jesus said, that the world has never seen or never will experience again. A tribulation, a time of testing, a time of struggle, a time of, of horrible things, of the wrath of God, of the judgment of God being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. And judgment will come not by flood, but by fire. Gang, what do we do in light of that? See, Jesus himself tells us that it's going to be like the days of Noah. In the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, when I come back, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like in Noah's day. And he gives a descriptor. People will be living for themselves. They're going to be Life is usual, eating and drinking and marrying and giving into marriage. And, and it's going to be as though nothing is wrong up until the day that Noah entered into the ark. People lived like that. The flood came and then they were destroyed. The days of Noah were marked by a sinful indulgence, a selfish living. People were just living for themselves a rejection of God, a rejection of God's word, a rejection of God's plan. And this weird pursuit of this pseudo-spiritual, and really it was just demonic, it was dark, and seemingly just, ah, life is going on. 
in ignorance, really, of God's judgment. Gang, that is the world in which we live today. And church family, I want to say this in love, we must not live then in ignorance of a coming judgment, of the return of Christ. And, and certainly we should not live in sinful indulgence to ignore the warnings or to dismiss what we have been divinely warned of, the things that is coming. Can you understand when we talk about Bible prophecy, these things that God has predicted, just as he told Noah, I'm warning you of something you haven't seen yet. We get warned in the same way, but those warnings aren't intended to scare us, but rather to prepare us. Right? The default application of any and all Bible prophecy is this, Jesus is coming back, make sure you're ready. And it causes us then to have to look inward. A time of tribulation is coming. And it wasn't just Jesus that said that. It's not just Paul that says that. Turn with me to Second Peter. Let's look at what Peter has to say. It's just two books over. Hebrew, James, I guess three. First Peter, Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 3. such a great chapter. I don't know where to drop in. I'm going to just start at verse 1. We have no third service. You guys are good, right? <laughs> just joking. I will res- I'll try to respect your time. Beloved, I write you these things, the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So just a reminder that it's good to be reminded. You might know this, heard this, studied this. It's good to be reminded of it that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. What are we to remember? Remember this, knowing this first, that there's going to be scoffers, people that will mock us. They're going to come in the last days, and they're going to walk according to their own lusts, their own desire. And what are they going to say? What are their mockery? What are their mockeries going to take the form of, where's the promise of this coming that you're talking about? You Christians are always saying that. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Every day looks the same. Since the beginning of time, there's always been earthquakes and floods and pandemics and these things. They're going to say that in mockery. But we're told, verse 5, they willfully forget that the Word of God, by the Word of God, excuse me, the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed, it perished, being flooded by water. So here's our connecting connection to you know, verse 7 of Hebrews 11. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved not for flood but for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Here's a contrast, but you, us, follower of Christ, beloved, don't forget this, that with God, time is different. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. And also remember that God's not slack concerning His promises. He doesn't delay, He doesn't, he doesn't procrastinate, like some of us, right? We're the masters of procrastination. 
Why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? That's my slogan. Right? God's not like that. But why? why? Why does he seem to delay? Well, grace. God's long-suffering because he desires that no one would perish. That's you. That's your family. That's your loved one. But he desires that all of us would come to repentance. But make no mistake, the day of the Lord's going to come as a thief in the night. The heavens are going to pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with a fervent heat. Some suggest maybe a nuclear type of explosion. The earth and the works that are in it are going to be burned up. And Peter says, okay, if that's the reality, if that is what's coming, we're divinely warned. If all of the things are going to dissolve in that manner, he brings it back to our life and he says, then how ought you and I to live? How are you and I to conduct ourselves in our family, in our singleness, and I'll add this, in your workplace? Because that's where we spend a lot of our time. And the orientation of us as the believers, we're looking forward then. And we're hastening this day. We don't have to be afraid of it. We welcome it. It's like the typhoons that come to Okinawa. We're not afraid. It's party. Party. And so nevertheless, according to his promise, we haven't seen it yet, but it's coming, a new heaven and a new earth. Gang, this is the question we start with. What's the work that we must do? What's the first work that we're to do? Well, repentance. <laughs> to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The disciples came to the Lord one day and said, Lord, what work must we do? And Jesus said in John 6, 29, here's the work of God, that you believe upon the one whom he sent. And so that's our starting point. Have we prepared our hearts for the Lord and the Lord's return? So Noah was divinely warned by faith. And what did he do? Well, he believed and then he did something. Verse, you can go back to Hebrews 11, excuse me. That next Part of that verse says he was moved with godly fear. He was moved with godly fear. He responded out of respect for what God said and who God is. His faith impacted his work. His faith impacted his response. How does faith fit in your work today? Is it a part of what you do consider of, of the motive of why you do what you do? I mean, what got Noah moving each day? What was his motive? I suggest to you, and though it looks different in our life, but there's still a principle there. It wasn't necessarily a paycheck, although there would be a great dividend to his obedience. It wasn't necessarily a promotion. It wasn't necessarily the next rank. It wasn't necessarily a certain parking spot or a certain level or a grade, for those of you who your work is school, it was to please the Lord. He was moved with great fear. It was a reverence and a respect for God and God's truth. And that is what sustained him. That is what was his alarm clock in the morning to get him up and to get him going. What committed him to the work each and every day and I imagine in some maybe very difficult days and lonely days and hard days, 
He wanted to work for the Lord. Let's take a little bit of of conjecture if we can. A little bit of liberty. I think it's safe, some safe space for us to do that. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but I imagine that as his neighbors and everybody else lived for self and lived for sin, Noah stayed true to what God called him to. And by virtue of that, that made it a very lonely job. A very lonely place. Everybody else is off doing something else The neighbor is not building an ark. It's just him. Every day, here's the grind, doing his thing. You ever felt like you're the only one in your workplace? Like everybody else is trying to cut corners. They're trying to cheat the system. They're trying to do the minimal. And and, and you're just trying to do what's right. That can be a lot of pressure. That you're wanting to honor the Lord. Nobody else has that mindset. If you're in that place, can I say, it might be lonely, but you're in good company. The Bible would encourage you not to lose heart. Keep on pressing on. The Lord is a great rewarder. God sees. Again, we're not told directly in the Genesis account, but I have to wonder if what others thought about Noah and his work. I mean, what did it look like to other people that Noah's building this ginormous boat in his backyard? Again, as I mentioned, it's believed that it's never rained before. It's never flooded before. Why would he need to do that? Why would he need to do something so drastic something that would encompass all of his time and all of his energy. Now, The book of Genesis, and even as we read in, in Peter, it seems to indicate that before the flood, so a pre-flood creation, a, pre- a pre-flood world, that there was this, I mentioned I think last week too, this type of uh, water canopy, this vapor that would encompass the globe. And that there are these underground aquifers. I mean, we still have those today. But they would rise enough and irrigate the crops plentiful where it didn't need to rain. There was just a perfect balance of humidity. It wasn't like Okinawa during the summer. And atmospheric pressure and temperature and that the water canopy, you know, provided this UV barrier. You didn't need sunscreen. You have to waste money on banana boat. Just go to the beach and enjoy. And, and so if that is the case, and they give explanations, say, well, that's why you know, it's a perfect environment for people to live long, hundreds and hundreds of years. And so here's Noah building this ark for an event that God told him was going to happen, but has never happened before. Again, what What did the neighbors think? What did his buddies from high school think? I would imagine they thought, this guy's crazy. This guy's loony. Or in Japanese, right? He's kurukurupa. He's loco in the cabeza. He's a couple tacos shy of a combo plate, this guy Noah. What is he building? That thing's a monstrosity. I don't think it's a stretch of imagination for us that 
In that then, there was mockery and scoffing and teasing. I mean, we, we, often, we often malign the things we don't understand, don't we? We often you know, have this um, animosity to things that we don't you know, fully comprehend. And yet that happens, that happens to us all the time. Jesus said the world is going to hate you because, well, the world hated him. And if you're a Christian this morning, you're a follower of Christ, getting as much as we would want to be liked by the world and our peers and our neighbors and our coworkers, understand that just sometimes by naming the name of Christ, people aren't going to like you because Christ is in you. And Jesus said, you can expect for the world to hate you. In today's language, we might say you can expect the world to cancel you, to ban you, to unfriend you, to block you. And so here's Noah, and he stands out as an anomaly to the rest of the world. For us, he's a hero of faith. But in his environment, in his culture, in his, everything around him, he's a weirdo. He is different. And his actions and his attitudes were not like the world. His conduct and his convictions were countercultural. The question is, can we, this say, can we say the same about us? Or do we look like the world in how we act, in the attitude that we cop, the integrity of our work? It's Peter who also reminds us that we are a chosen generation, that you and I are a royal priesthood. We are a, a holy nation. And the King James Version uses this phrase, and you are a peculiar people. For God has chosen you and called you out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light that we might proclaim the praises of him. Our beautiful, wonderful, spiritual PCS. Out of darkness and PCS in the kingdom of light. You are a peculiar people. You're going to look different than the world. And if you and I have chosen to follow Jesus Christ today, you're going to be labeled a fool, a weirdo. And it's not easy, though. And God never said it would be. It's hard because if your nature is like mine, I, I, like, I like people. <laughs> and I like people to like me. And I, I want to be able to be welcomed and be accepted. But again, we have to be careful. It's... It's one thing to be friendly in the world and have friends in the world, and then it's something else to be then a friend of the world. Like we don't want to be worldly. James, uh, in the book of James, he really doesn't mince his words. Right? He doesn't hold back. In James 4.4, 4, he just says, Hey, you adulterous generation. <laughs> do, you not, do you not know that for you to be a friend of the world means that you are an enemy of God? To have friendship in this world with worldliness, that's the idea. It means to have enmity. You're, you stand opposed to what God wants. Again, we're called to be a peculiar people. We're going to look different. And it should impact then the way that we work. Your work should look different. The integrity in which you work. The attitude in which you work. 
and the attitude in which you serve, and the attitude in which you follow. See, Noah's motive was he was moved with godly fear. It is the highest and greatest motivation. Right? We often respond to things that transcend ourselves, right? That we're inspired by something greater than just us. And as Christians, we have the greatest call. We have the greatest motivation. You know, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there's a buzzword in many circles today, and that is to know your why. You want to lose weight? You better know your why. That keeps you centered. You want to achieve this next thing? You better know your why. That keeps you grounded. We have the greatest why of everything that we do. We possess the greatest why, and the greatest why for us is the glory of God. All that we do in everything that we do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do to the glory of God. And so Noah reminds us of this. He wanted to glorify God and please the Lord more than he wanted to please the others. I don't, that was a weird whistling thing, huh? <laughs> and what that meant then is that Noah stood against the current of culture. I'm challenged by that. Uncompromised in his commitments. All right, we make an observation. Let's, let's make application. What does that look like in your life when you clock in, when you put on your uniform? When you show up at your office or your unit tomorrow, or for many of you, your student, when you go to school, or for many of you, you know, your work is your home. What does it look like in that space? Can we say that we come to whatever God has called us to do in this season with the mindset that we want to honor God? That we want to honor God by the thing that we do and the attitude in which we do it? Have you considered how you conduct yourself? Are you one who's just trying to do the minimal? Cutting corners? Cheating the system? Or can we say that we come with a desire to honor the Lord, we're motivated by the glory of God, and so we, we, we bring excellence to what we do. We bring our best, and we try our best. See, God deserves nothing less than that. The question for us, though, is what's our motivation? What, what's our motive? At your workplace, at school, again, whatever you do, Here's a great mindset the Bible gives us, that we should view our work as a means of our worship, that it becomes an offering in which we can bring to the Lord. And at the end of our day, at the end of the assignment, at the end of folding the laundry, washing the dishes, or whatever it is that you and I do, our work is a way in which we get to worship God. And by faith, and it may be a place that you're by yourself. And it may be a place that nobody else wants to follow the Lord. Nobody else claims to be a Christian, but you are. He's moved with godly fear. And what did he do? Well, he got to work. He prepared an ark for the saving of his household. Noah's faith, Noah's trusting what God said, it impacted his work, but it also impacted his family. 
Because we understand, right, if Noah didn't trust the Lord and Noah wasn't obedient to all that God called him to do, what was on the line? His family was on the line. I mean, arguably, we are on the line, right? As the saying goes, if Noah didn't build the ark, we're all sunk. Literally, right? What a tremendous responsibility he carries. Some of you carry a tremendous responsibility. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, a lot of things can happen, and they can go south or go bad. But can I encourage you? Noah carried this, but he was able and enabled. Able and enabled to do what God had called him to do because God was the one who called him to do it. He walked in obedience, and that's what gave him then the ability to do what God called him to do. Noah builds an ark according to the design that God gave him. And it meant salvation for his family. I can't, as an aside, but it's an important aside, and I can't ignore this. Let me remember that the ark in itself becomes this amazing spiritual picture of, of our salvation. Now, it's not exactly complete because the saving work that we enter into isn't a work that we do, but it's a work that Christ has done, as I mentioned earlier. It's because Christ fulfilled the work that God gave him to do completely and fully that we then are saved. We're more like Noah's family. We come into the completed work of the cross. We get to find salvation by faith and be rescued from judgment. And the ark is a beautiful picture of that. It has one way in. The Bible says that after everyone's secured, God sealed the door. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And you and I, when we come into salvation by faith, God seals us. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. But we have to come by faith, and we have to come to Christ by faith. The work that He has done, that is what saves us. See, unlike Noah, we don't work, we don't work to save ourselves. Again, we're more like His family. But our work then flows from our salvation, not for it. But there is a principle here. Preparing an ark for the saving of his household. The idea that he is building something that meant something for his family and for future generation, and he did so in obedience to Christ. What are you building today? What are you building today? All of your labors, all of your efforts, all of your saving, all of your striving, all of the sacrifices that you have made. Can you say it is something that God has called you to do? That it is according to God's design? Or would you and I say, I'm building something according to my design and I hope God blesses it? The fact that he prepared an ark for the saving of his household and it saved his household, it's a reminder for us that our work, while it is a form of worship, 
while we can have faith in it, that it in itself is not the end. It's just a means. It is a means to a glorious end. And sometimes we get that backwards. Where work becomes our complete identity. Where work becomes then the end. Listen, what are we building? The marriage that you're building, the family that you're building, and the career that you're building, the life that you're building, is it an endeavor that draws you closer to the Lord? Because there's a subtle difference and there's a nuance because our work can be a form of worship, but we don't want our work to be our worship. Because guess what? You can worship your work. Right? Your title can become an idol. And we have to be careful. Because even our workplace can become like a mistress. Where we then neglect our household. We neglect our marriage, our family, our, our God-given responsibilities. We neglect our spiritual walk. And now all of a sudden work becomes our sole identity and it becomes a mistress. That's out of bounds. We have to make sure we keep work in its proper place. It is a means. And for some of you, it's a platform which God has given you to have influence and impact to the people around you. If you're going to build anything, build it to the glory of God. What did it mean for his own family? Well, it meant everything. It meant everything. But it also meant something for others. Here's this last phrase, and we'll close here. By which he condemned the world. By faith he builds this ark, he trusts the Lord, and what happened? He condemns the world. But he himself becomes an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. How did Noah condemn the world by building this ark? Did he spray paint on the side? You're condemned. I, I don't imagine Noah walking around with a sandwich board saying, hey, the end is near. You're going to H-E double hockey sticks. Right? Now, there, there's, that, there's a message and there's a place for that. But I want to suggest to you that just by his obedience to what God called him alone, and his faith that he held on to, that that was not only convicting to people, but that became a condemnation for people. If you will, they condemned themselves by not following what Noah was doing. By the way, do you know how long it took Noah to build an ark? Anybody know? Oh, I heard it. 120 years. You thought your husband took a long time building something, right? 120 years. That's a long time. That's a long time to grind. Thinking, man, I'm going to get to the 20-year mark. I'm going to retire. 120 years, this guy, over and over again, swinging a hammer. Not only is it a testimony of his perseverance, but it's also a testimony of God's patience. 120 years people had an opportunity to see what he was doing, to hear why he was doing it. The Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. They condemn themselves. In the same way today, God doesn't, I don't believe God sends anybody to hell. It is the default of our heart. And when we reject what Christ has done for us, we refuse what Christ has done for us, we then choose that for ourselves. 120 years God gave for people to repent. 120 years they watched Noah build this boat. 
What is a reminder of for you and for me? Not only is your work a form of worship, you can honor God by faith, your work is a form of witness. By how you work and the attitude in which you work, it's a form of your Christian witness. The Bible says of us that we're walking Bibles. We're like living epistles and we're walking around. We're seen and read by people around us. That's convicting, isn't it? You think about the jokes that you tell at your workplace. How you work, the quality of your work. How you conduct yourself. Several years ago, after the Spaghetti Factory days, um, some of you guys know I, I worked for Nike. I was operations manager. And part of my responsibilities was I oversaw the um, you know, human resources department and the uh, hiring, the training, and even the firing of employees. And so one day, one of the managers said, hey, we got to let this guy go. Here's all the write-ups and all these things. And so it was my glorious job <laughs> to sit down and just basically say, hey, it's time to go. And so I did. I sat down with this guy and uh, told him, today's your last day. When you're done, you got to clean your desk, pull your locker, and uh, hand in your badge and key. You're done. And he began to plead with me. and said, come on, you're a Christian. Aren't you the children's pastor at your church? And I was at the time. I said, yeah. And he's like, I'm a Christian too. And I said, well, if that's true, not only are you a bad employee, you're a bad Christian. <laughs> today's your last day. you got to go. And what, what is your testimony in your workplace? At your office, your unit, your school, your neighborhood? Can we, God has given us this wonderful opportunity to exercise our faith in a place we spend a lot of time, and that's our workplace. And as you and I honor the Lord, God will honor you. For Noah, his faith and trusting God in the work that God gave him to do, it meant everything for his family, and it impacted the people around him. Now, ultimately, he's not responsible for their response. But what it meant for him, he becomes an heir of righteousness because of his faith and his trust in the Lord. He's a recipient of God's favor as he honored the Lord in the work that God gave him to do. And the same is true for us. Amen? Father, thank you so much for our time in your word this morning. We look at Noah's faith. We're challenged by it. A reminder that we can live out our faith in our workplace too. It's not just what happens on Sunday, but what happens on Monday at school as we're shopping in all of these places, Lord. And God, I pray that you would help us to remember that we work as unto you. That the greatest motivation that we can carry more than a paycheck, more than promotion, more than a good grade, would be for the glory of God. That we would honor and please you. That the fear of the Lord would be what holds our heart and keeps us committed. God, help us to view our work as a form of worship. It might be odd and a strange thing to think, but Lord, that we would work hard. We'd give our best. We wouldn't cut corners. And Lord, along with that, that we wouldn't worship work, we wouldn't idolize our identity or our title. Certainly there's space to take pride in what we do, but Lord, that we wouldn't be prideful. And God, help us to remember 
that work is a means to an end. It is the avenue in which you have provided for us to invest in your kingdom in the greater work. It's a witness of our faith. And so, Lord, help us to remember we are walking Bibles, trophies of your grace, but also proclaimers of that grace in the way that we work. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. I do.